Good morning, New Haven. This is Love Babs, Love Talk, but this is not Babs. It's not Babs or Earl's Ivy. He usually hosts every morning, gets us wake, woken up and ready for the day. She's having a great week off, as I'm told by Babs. At a writing workshop, loving nature, she got the big snow. And I'm Pope Babs, filling in for the inimitable Babs. And we're going to speak this morning with Roland Lamar, state representative from New Haven, 96th Assembly District, since 2010. He's been there a while. And he's now worked out to be chair of the House, the House chair of the Transportation Committee. He's going to tell us what's up this week at the Capitol. We're trying to make safer streets in New Haven. Good morning, Roland, and thanks so much for coming in. Of course. Good morning. Good to see you. Hey, you know, there's breaking news this morning in New Haven. There was a homeless encampment on the, uh, and we're going to talk about traffic, I promise, and transportation. There was a lot of traffic on the boulevard today because they were swarming in the city to shut down a homeless tent encampment, which is yeah. a tough issue. They said about public safety hazards there. The people living there said they had nowhere else to go or didn't want to go to shelters. And most people left. Um, a few holdouts there without incident, and then one protester who wouldn't leave, so he was arrested. But there's something really interesting happened this morning, Roland. Do you remember Occupy New Haven in 2012? I do, Yes. You remember that was a big encampment in the green and nobody leave for months and it was really dangerous with the flammable stuff and the filth and all that kind of stuff. When the police went in that day, they had a lot of people to remove by force and um, they were being taunted and all that. And they invited the press to watch everything up close to show they were doing their job right. And uh, today the Ellicott administration went out of its way to make sure nobody could see what they were doing when they got three people to leave. They lied to the press about knowing when they were going to go in. They went in just around dawn, and then when reporters showed up, they penned us away so that we couldn't see anything near, and they claimed it was for our own safety. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I'm watching situations like this unfold across the country, frankly, and like, right, it's, it's, it's a conflation of a series of issues about housing scarcity, uh, housing costs, how to sort of rectify the public safety concerns that administrator that the administrations have in these communities, and the fact that this is a it's a youth soccer field, right? Like, like at point there are hard choices to be made about like when you when do you put um, administrative force or police force behind removal of people from a place that they're living. So it's a hard choice the administration's got to make. So I want to start there. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, by the way. Yeah, it's a really one, hard choice. Yeah, but once you make that choice. I think the way they handled it with Occupy New Haven, I actually disagreed with the timeline they had developed at that time. But you know, I, you have to invite the press in. You have to make sure that that everyone understands why you're making the choice you're making. That you're making it with humanity and humility, and that you're like recognizing the very real struggles that people who are on that set are dealing with. I think it would be it would have. It would have the optics of it would have been better if the press had been invited in and made aware of what was happening and made aware more fully of all the resources that were trying to be made available to the individuals that the counseling that they had available on site was sufficient. Like it just, it just. It, well, they it, told us that everybody left without incident. They didn't show us how they removed them, well, how they spoke to them. And there's a lieutenant in charge there named Justin Cole, who has a really horrible history of dealing with the public. That's the person they had in charge of the scene. And like, I don't trust that he did it right. Maybe he did. But I yeah. don't want to see it for myself before I believe that he handled them sensitively. Yeah, no, I, there's a couple of people that I know who've been part of the protests, and I'll, I'm going to reach out to them and see if what their viewpoint of it was. I don't want to criticize it too much. Maybe they did do it right, but like not inviting the press in and not having a more public facing. And then panning us away. And, and yeah. that's the part I couldn't believe. Claim yeah. it was for our safety. 
that's like 1970s thinking. I thought we're, I mean, even in Minneapolis, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. No, I look, give them some benefit of, of like thought. Like, like I, I presume that this was a well thought out, well executed program. They've had a, a lot of time to develop what their strategy was going to be. Hopefully it was uh, a robust plan that they had in place, but not having the press there and not having a more public facing aspect of it invites these questions. And, and what got me is that when we show it up, because the mayor says, well, we don't have to tell you, but they lied to us about not knowing when they're going in. But when they showed up, they kept them like all the way at the other block so you couldn't watch. That's yeah. the part that got me even more. I don't know. But anyway, yeah. Roland Lamar, that's not why we had you on radio this morning, but thanks for chatting <laughs> about that. You're the chair of the Transportation Committee. Last year, you got a lot of work done trying to get advances for safe streets and electrified bus fleet. What are, what are the big uh, issues you're trying to get through your committee this session, and how's that going? Well, we've got quite a few things. We actually had our first uh, committee meeting where we passed through a series of bills um, last week. We're finishing up our work in the committee tomorrow, um, and we have a pretty robust agenda. And I'm, I'm really proud of what the Transportation Committee has become at the General Assembly. It, it wasn't that long ago that the Transportation Committee was seen as a place to go if you wanted to, you know, build highways and expand roads and, you know, just you know, build new bridges and a lot of infrastructure was invested in, uh, you know, multi-million to multi-billion dollar highway projects. And the focus that I've had in the last six years that I've been chair has tried to move away from that. And the people who join the transportation committee now uh, do so understanding that our framework for this conversation about transportation policy is around safe streets, uh, micromobility, uh, expanding alternative forms of transportation, being thoughtful about what transportation policy can do for communities. Uh, and this year's agenda followed suit. We, uh, when the primary uh, bill that we passed last week was our implementation of Vision Zero recommendations. Uh, and Vision what that, Zero. What does that mean, Vision Zero? So there's a, there's a growing interest around the country, particularly in urban communities, but now being embraced by states as a whole uh, to develop a vision zero policy um, in which we recognize that there are no deaths uh, on our roadways that mm. are not preventable. Uh, we can establish policies and, and uh, procedures and techniques to ensure that there aren't any roadways whether it's pedestrians, whether it's a car versus car, uh, removing the context of these things being accidents when in many cases it's a rate of speed or distraction or other contributing factors that led to all of these crashes and fatalities. And so uh, we became the first state in the country to pass a statewide Vision Zero Council. They met for the past year and a half under the leadership of then Deputy Commissioner Yucalito, and they forwarded a series of recommendations to the General Assembly this year that we took up. They include some controversial things, um, mandating the use of motorcycle helmets uh, for all motorcycle riders. Uh, why, why is that controversial? Oh, I guess because the libertarian argument is as long as you're not hurting somebody else, you could get you can get a you know get your brain destroyed and die if you want to in an accident. That is that is part of the argument. Yeah, so a freedom loving argument is uh, the the argument that I hear most frequently. Uh, ensuring that there's no more open containers in the cabin of the vehicle. Right now, we're one of a few states in the country that allow passengers and other riders to drink alcohol openly in the car. Uh, and we we is that have include weed, by the way. It doesn't include weed. We haven't had the conversation about marijuana yet. I know that's a that's a big issue. 
Uh, we, are, we are mandating additional driver's education materials and educational uh, uh, process in our driver's ed and licensing programs so that people understand the impact that uh, marijuana has, weed has on driving capacity. There are a number of people who still believe this sort of antiquated, I don't even know where it came from, thought that, well, I, I've heard people say it, like, I drive better when I'm stoned. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, I you don't drive speed as much. <laughs> uh, that's not right. Your, your reaction times are greatly inhibited. Your ability to understand the surroundings is, is inhibited. And like, we, like, we got to get that mindset out of people's mind. You don't drive better stoned. Uh, Connecticut is seeing a dramatic increase in the number of roadway fatalities, largely uh, driven by alcohol, but also by a uh, growing number by, by marijuana. So we have to get on top of this stuff. It also includes um, the use of speed and red light cameras in select zones. We use a data-driven approach to develop like where high crash incidents are, where pedestrian and, and roadway fatalities are increasing dramatically. We'd allow local municipalities to develop a program that's data-driven. Like you have to show, you have to prove to us that you're choosing locations based upon a, a history um, of accidents and crashes. And we'd use those funds to improve traffic safety. Like it can't be a cash cow for local communities. Mm -hmm. Those dollars be directly uh, spent on improving traffic safety in communities. Um, so that's all, it's, it's, a, it's a big package of reforms, controversial, but we got it through. We, we're discussing what the DOT's tree removal policy is and how to um, well, that's an interesting one because we, we, as you know, on Dayton Street, New Haven, it's a one quarter block street that's just heavily congested because it connects two major thoroughfares, Whaley and um, Fountain. And that's a state road because of that. And night and day, tons of cars. It's hard to breathe, you know, from the pollution. And there are only five trees there. All but one are considered in good condition. DOT is insisting that the city take them all down be, um, if they want to put new sidewalks, which they have to do because the sidewalks aren't safe. Is that addressed in your bill? It's it not not that specific location, but we do make DOT go through a more robust process to determine if there are appropriate locations for replantings, uh, what to do in a circumstance where it's deemed that there's a safety hazard. Like like you know what I'm hearing more frequently from folks is um, like the clear cutting that you'll see in and along like 91, 95, the Merritt Parkway where they just take down hundreds and hundreds of trees and they don't have a replanting plan in place. They don't replace in kind and look in, you know, similar locations. The Department of Transportation in, is often dealing with a number of lawsuits from tree branches that fall on top of cars and either injure a passerby or, uh, you know, hurt a car or shut down a lane of travel for hours at a time. So they, they are, they think they're being responsive to safety concerns, but the net impact here is what you see you know, Dayton Street is a good example of it. It's like, I under, DOT is saying, look, you put up sidewalks under, under the current plan that you have. We know that those trees are going to die. Like, we know that that current plan that the city of New Haven has developed just means that those root systems are going to be damaged. Those trees are going to die in short order and limbs are going to start falling on cars. And we, DOT engineers, can't approve that plan. So city, come up with a better plan. Now, the net impact of that is the city can't come up with a better plan of dealing with a confined space. 
Um, if the DOT doesn't provide approval to narrow those roadways, it can't just expand the sidewalk further to protect the trees more. So DOT has got to give better advice and better, uh, like better outline what a rational policy can be that the city can adopt. There's also honest disagreement sometimes. So the city's worked really hard because of the political pressure from environmentals in town. They yeah. find ways that when it first looks like it's too dangerous to leave the tree there because there'll be harms to the roots to actually take more measures to protect those roots and find ways to maybe build around it or something. So there's an honest disagreement between the DOT and the city here. They went and looked at it. So it sounds like under your bill, the DOT could still say, we went back and looked at it. We just don't see the way things the way the New Haven does, which I guess is going to happen, right? Yeah, but we, they have to show, they have, <laughs> they have to went through a, a robust process to deter, make that determination. And if that determination is made, what, what is DOT's responsibility? Like, are there different replanting programs that they need to develop? Like, how do we replace what's lost in that environment? Like, and, like it, it shouldn't be the case that because we couldn't come up with a plan today, Dayton Street doesn't get to have street trees anymore. Or like, like there's got to be a, a net consequence when a tree is, is removed. Yeah. Um, right. So like, like we, we want to, so we're developing, working with Yukon Agricultural Station. We're trying to develop uh, an arborist-proofed uh, program for replacement in kind. We're looking at, you know, the development of pollinator gardens along our uh, highways. Like, there's a series of initiatives we're trying to do to sort of rectify what we see as sometimes overly aggressive tree removal policies. Awesome. Uh, also, State yeah. Rep. Rep. Ron Lamar from New Haven is the House Chair of the Transportation Committee. He's been busy. He says that tomorrow, on Friday, you're going to... What does it mean to finish up your work? Meaning all the committee hearings, the votes are done, and now stuff goes to the floor? That's right. We've uh, went through four public hearings on proposed bills. Uh, we had a series of oversight hearings in our committees with each of the relevant agencies under our jurisdiction. Uh, we got a series of recommendations from uh, leadership caucuses, and now we have to complete our work. What is the final product that the transportation... And that happens on Friday? Yep, we finish up tomorrow. All right. So, uh, Roland Lamar, uh, a lot of talk around the streets that I hear these days about how the free bus rides are ending. CT Transit during the pandemic made it free to ride the buses, a little soft to bus riders because they were, you know, keep getting rid of the gas tax for the drivers. And uh, April 1st, it's no longer be free to ride the bus. We've all gotten used to it. <laughs> you know, we all love free stuff and not everything. Life is free. Um, have you been hearing any of that? Have you taken any stand on this? Should we keep some people saying like Eli Sabin and New the New Haven Alders had a, a resolution from the New Haven Alders saying we should keep bus rides free. So there are a couple things. Yeah, I, I, what we've noticed in the last year and a half with the implementation of free buses is that ridership started to uh, grow back more robustly than it did on our train lines, right? Like folks started to take the bus and the idea of it being free meant folks who like, didn't have a dollar 75 on them could jump on board and not have to worry about um, uh, like, I don't have exact change. I don't have the money. I don't have my pass with me. And so the ridership did start to increase. And we're looking at examples from across the country about free bus programs and what that means for ridership increases. There's some differences in the data. It looks like a lot of folks, like it wasn't driving people out of cars the way um, we originally thought maybe it would. So people aren't making the choice. Like, well, instead of driving today, I'll take the bus because it's free. It looks like what's happening is a lot of people who would otherwise walk or ride bikes or take that transportation now, instead of doing that, jump on the bus. There's no question there were days when I was running late and I had one mile to go. I hopped on the bus because 
yeah, I wasn't going to have to pay that $1.75 or, Correct. you know, it was kind of raining and I want to hop on the bike. You just described me. So I, I, I guess I believe you. Yeah. So it, it's not having the mode shift, um, like uh, benefits that we originally thought it would. And when we, we had a robust hearing process on bus transportation just a few years ago, part of the Move New Haven project, where we did a series of community meetings across the city. I think we did a couple dozen of them talking about bus system in, in New Haven and what we could do to improve it. And the feedback we got during that time wasn't about the cost of the bus. It wasn't about a, you know, being $1.75 is too expensive. It was route predictability, route frequency, and whether or not you could get on the bus safely like during a snowstorm or like was a shelter properly located where it was with the destinations that they make sense in the 21st century. And so to me, if we want to encourage mode shift, those are the issues we have to focus on. They have made progress on that. I have a few questions. I think it's, I like the bus. Yeah, no, so, so do I. And, and we've improved the buses, like, you know, the articulated buses, we're moving more towards electric buses. Um, it'll be a safer, cleaner ride for a variety of reasons moving forward. I, I struggle with that, like what I'm saying, how I'm describing that, what does that mean my policy position is? I can't afford to do both inside of the special transportation fund. And that's the amount, that's the money I have. I can't dramatically improve bus service in New Haven with the same dollars that I'm giving up by not collecting fare revenue. In so are you in favor of the fares returning? I am. Terrible thing for a politician because you got to run for office and you have to tell someone, I want you to pay for something. Yeah, no, I, I think given, given a, and I think this is, this is why I'm going to have this position. Like the easiest thing for me to say is. We got the tomatoes want, ready, by the way. <laughs> like, like I want the bus service to be free, but I want the general fund to pay for it. Right. That, that's the easy thing for me to say. Like the, in the, the state general funds should pay the additional $45 million a year it costs to keep buses free. Knowing that it's going to get pushed back to me and I'm going to have to find within my limited amount of dollars, which is the special transportation fund, I'm going to have to pay for it in that fund. I know it's going to come at the cost of expanded bus service in New Haven. The Move New Haven program is going to be negatively impacted. My ability to provide Shoreline East rail service is going to be negatively impacted. My ability to run a community connectivity grant program, to improve bus shelters, to improve sidewalk programs. So is to, your position, can we, roll, can we boil it down this yeah. way? Will Lamar says, I think bus service should be free and I'd like the state to pay for it. So I could be a Weasley politician and just say I'm coming out for free bus because I want the general fund to pay for it. But if I'm going to be intellectually honest, I'm going to say I have to make choices with the real budget it comes from because it would come back to me. And it's going to be more important for people to ride the bus and to have our larger goal of people out of cars to spend to make the tough choice on those dollars and have right. it instead go to upgrades. Is that a fair way? That's a fair way to say it. Yeah. Our speed cameras. Is that going to happen? I think so. I got it out of committee. Um, uh, I've spoken with the speaker of the house. He's committed to me to have of it on the floor. Uh, so I feel I feel we're in a much better spot than we've been in, in years past. Mike Lawler, the former governor, aide and state rep, told me that we've been misrepresenting that issue. He says speed cameras are legal. The city can have speed cameras that all your bill would do would be to make sure that the money goes to the state. and There's no new municipal um, court set up. So he says that all this debate could be stopped and we could just put speed cameras up. Is he right or is he missing something? 
uh, I have looked, he sent me some information. Um, my attorneys in my legislative commissioner's office, which is the attorneys for my committee, uh, the state house representatives and the department of transportation happened to disagree with him. Um, and uh, in years past, the corporation councils of the city of New Haven, city of Hartford have looked at it and have reached a different determination. And everyone's felt that we needed state authorizing language. So, so what is the specific terminology of your bill? What does it specifically do for speed cameras? So it would allow municipalities to develop automated enforcement devices, which is speed cameras, red light cameras, and designated zones, speed, uh, uh, pedestrian safety zones or school zones. Um, the local council or first electmen, in our case, the Board of Alders in New Haven, would have to approve of the program. They'd have to, they'd have, to have a complete streets program in place. Like that New Haven has. That's right. And they'd have, to de they'd have to show where they intended to spend the dollars that is raised by those cameras. Oh, so, so they could keep the money. Municipalities can keep the money. It, yeah, they could keep the money, but it has to go towards it has to go towards improving traffic safety in the in the community. And and does the can it be any place where people are speeding? Or can it be on um, Orchard Street where they've tried with the speed bumps? Can it be some of those deadlier intersections like coming on West Park? Yeah, they have to use a data-driven approach to determine the locations, and then they have to make those locations pedestrian safety zones. They have to put up signage. They have to let people know speed cameras are in use. They have to let people know um, the process that they went through. And, and that, to me, is how we get around um, what I've seen is poor implementation in other states where communities would uh, try to use cameras as a revenue raising device to solve, you know, general fund issues where they target mm -hmm. low income or minority communities for implementation of the devices um, and use it as a revenue generating tool. Justin and those Farmer wrote in a question. Thank you for listening, Justin. Harry Jaros thinks it's a slippery slope. Harry, Justin says, who holds and controls the data from the red light cameras and what happens when that data is misused? Aha, I, and I've addressed this. I've actually worked very closely with the ACLU on the data retention policies. It's a national model program that I've had. It, it doesn't allow the misuse of the data. Uh, it, we actually force them to destroy the data after uh, the adjudication process is considered. And um, I, I think it, it, ACLU has signed off on the data provision, the data uh, uh, policy protection component of it. They don't like the other parts of it, but on the data uh, privacy concerns, uh, we've we've got a best in nation model. Well, Jerome Lamar, it's always so much fun to have you on radio. You are so tapped into the pressing issues at the Capitol. You always explain it in a way that an idiot like me can understand. So, thank you for coming on Dateline. I mean, I, I love Babs Love Talk this morning on WNHHFM. Talk to you soon. Thanks again. Good luck fighting the fight in Hartford. We're going to take a break now. We're going to get the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. We'll be back on, I think, with rerun in the Rosa DeLauro interview about Paycheck Fairness. And then we're going to be back live at 1030 with Anthony McDonald, the executive director of the Schubert Theater, about what's new and what's old that's new at the Schubert Theater. Stay tight. WNHH New Haven's home for community radio.